It is certainly a joy and a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to speak to you from God's word today. I've enjoyed the weekend getting to see each of you. Uh, Huge congratulations to the bride and groom that were married yesterday. Um, Certainly have enjoyed uh, the, the wedding and the weekend and being here with you. And hopefully this morning as we study a portion of God's word from the Old Testament, Uh, We'll find some things that are helpful to us as we seek to live a Christian life and walk the path that God has called us to walk in this life. Now, we're going to look at the chapters uh, 13 through 19 out of the book of 2 Samuel, and we're not going to cover all of the chapters. I recognize that there's seven chapters there listed, but we are going to kind of summarize a story that takes place over these chapters, and it features a man by the name of Absalom. And if we back up one chapter to 2 Samuel 12 and verse 7, we see this passage, this statement here, where it says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Now, if you're familiar with that story, you know that this phrase comes out of the story of David and Bathsheba, where David had seen the woman Bathsheba, who was married to another man, seen her bathing, decided that he wanted her. He took her for his own, committed adultery with her. And Nathan comes to him and he's basically telling him, he tells them this story, remember, of this rich man that had many lambs and this poor man that had one lamb and the rich man was having a guest come to his house. And instead of feeding that guest with one of his sheep that he had, he took the poor man's one lamb and used that to feed his guest. And David was irate, he was mad, he was angry. How dare this rich man take that poor man's lamb? And Nathan looks at him in the eye and he says, David, you are that man. You you are the king of Israel. You have multiple wives at this point. You can have essentially anything that you want in life and you've taken that man Uriah's wife for your own. It wasn't yours to take. Now, as a result of that sin, Nathan prophesied uh, God's justice upon David and the uh, recompense for his decisions there that there would be consequences that David would face. He said, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now, God is essentially telling David, look, because of your sinful decisions and choices that you have made, there's gonna be consequences that you're gonna face. There's gonna be evil that's gonna come out of your own house that's gonna rise up against you. And then he he speaks a very specific prophecy here. He says, that evil that rises up from your own house will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And I just want you to remember that prophecy as we go through this story because we're gonna see the fulfillment of it through the course of the study this morning. Now, I wanna give you kind of a quick summary of the major characters because there's kind of a lot of moving parts to this story. And so I think having a a general idea of who we're talking about maybe helps to start. So our main character is gonna be Absalom. Absalom is the son of King David. He's the third born son. Now, he has a full-blooded sister named Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar are King David's kids, brother and sister, okay? Uh, But they have a different mother, than one of David's other sons named Amnon. So Amnon was actually the firstborn son of David and he's gonna feature in the early part of this story. So Amnon is the half brother to Absalom and Tamar, okay? But they're all King David's kids. And you look at these three characters down here, we have Joab. Joab was the friend of the king and commander of the king's army. He's gonna play an integral role. Ahithophel was David's advisor. He's gonna eventually betray David in this story. And then Hushai is another advisor of David who's gonna play a double agent on behalf of David, okay? So we'll talk about the the details as we go through this story, but a quick summary of the character backgrounds. 2 Samuel 13, verse one. says, it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar and Amnon, the son of David, 
loved her. Okay, so remember, Absalom and Tamar, full-blooded brother and sister, son and daughter of King David. Their half-brother Amnon, David's firstborn, looks over at his half-sister Tamar and looks at her filled with lust and desire. Now, he talks to his friend Jonadab and tells him about his longing for and desire for Tamar. And Jonadab, his friend, gives him the idea to fake illness, ask David to send his half-sister in there to cook for him and to take care of him while he's sick. And so Amnon does this. He pretends to be sick. He asks King David to send his half-sister Tamar in there. King David obliges. Tamar goes in to cook and to take care of Amnon while he's supposedly sick. And once she's in there, Amnon casts everybody out of the room and asks Tamar to commit sin with him. She refuses. And so instead of yielding to that refusal, he took what he wanted from her and viciously attacked her. And so she runs out of that room after that had been done. In verse 19, it says, Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Verse 21 says, but when King David heard all of these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now that garment of diverse colors that you see there was a special, a special garment that was given to the virgin daughters of the king. And so as you think about this situation, this horrible situation where Amnon has, has betrayed and attacked his half-sister, and she runs from that room and she's tearing that garment that meant so much to her that was given to the virgin daughters of the king and she's crying and she's upset. And then we see David, her father's response. David heard all of these things. He was very angry, very wroth about what his son, his oldest son had done to his daughter. But that's the only thing that we see in David's response. No consequence, no punishment, no justice for Tamar. That's it. And then we see Absalom, Tamar's full-blooded brother, who's angry and upset and hates now his older brother Amnon for what he had done to Tamar. So Absalom decides that he's gonna get revenge and he creates this feast. And we've fast forwarded two years. For two years, Absalom has kept hatred in his heart toward his other, older brother Amnon. And he creates this feast and he invites all of the king's sons to this feast, including Amnon. All of them show up. And Absalom's gonna give his servant some instructions. He commands his servant saying, mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did and Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. So Absalom, two years after this attack that Amnon had carried out against Tamar, Absalom gets revenge. And he kills his brother, the brother who had carried out the attack. And he kills him through his servants. Now, David hears a message that all his sons had been killed and panics for a moment until a second messenger comes and says, let not my Lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And we see here that from that day, two years before Absalom had been plotting that revenge in that moment, and he finally got his chance. Now, Absalom has just committed murder against the firstborn son of the king. And so Absalom flees into exile and runs. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 37, it says, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. 
So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. Now Geshur was the land of Absalom's mother. So Absalom runs to the land of his mother. He hides out there fearing retribution for killing Amnon. But we see King David's perspective here. He mourned. When you first read that David mourned for his son, you think he's, he's mourning for Amnon who died, but he's not. He's mourning for Absalom. He was comforted concerning Amnon. You know why? Because King David knew the kind of man that Amnon was. A man that would invite his half-sister in and carry out a vicious attack against her. And he was comforted now that Amnon's dead. And he's longing to have his relationship with Absalom restored despite the fact that Absalom's now a murderer and killed another one of his sons. Now we fast forward a little bit more. It's three years into the future. Absalom's been in exile in the land of his mother for three years. King David's been longing to have his relationship restored. And finally, Joab, the friend and commander of the king's army, decides to go to the king and encourage him to make amends with Absalom and to invite him back. And so essentially, Joab does this through the words of a, a woman who puts on a show for the king. Second Samuel 14, it says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had long time to mourn for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put words in her mouth. And so Joab hires this woman to pretend to be a mother who's mourning the death of her son. And so this woman appears before King David and she tells this elaborate story about her two sons that were in the field and one son rose up against the other and killed him. And she says, now everyone is seeking justice and determined to kill her other son who committed the murder, but she's already lost one son. She doesn't wanna lose the other one. So she's begging King David to do something to protect her, her murderous son. And King David has compassion on her. And he says, absolutely, if anybody touches one hair on his head, they'll have to deal with me, essentially. In verse 23, sorry, I didn't have that verse on there. So he, he tells her this, and then this woman looks at him and says, but if you'll do this for my son, why won't you do it for your own? Who obviously had committed murder against his, his brother as well. And the king looks at this woman and says, essentially, did Joab put you up to this? I mean, he saw right through the, the show and she said, yes, Joab told me what to say. But nevertheless, he tells Joab, go and bring my son Absalom home. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. So David's going to allow Absalom now after three years of being in exile to come back home, but he's still not ready to see him. He still, I think, recognizes the immense sin that Absalom has committed in murdering Amnon and the type of person that he is. He's not ready to, to fully restore that relationship, but he invites him back. And for the next two years, Absalom is gonna live in Jerusalem, but not be able to see his father, King David. Now, Absalom finally has enough of this. He tries to get Joab's attention several ways. He eventually burns Joab's fields to force Joab to talk to him and says to Joab, go tell my father, either kill me or restore me, but I'm tired of this. And so Joab goes and tells the king that, and David invites Absalom to him. It says, Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself and his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So here we are, some five years removed from Absalom killing Amnon, seven years removed from the original attack that Amnon carried out against Tamar, and David has now restored Absalom to him. He's brought him back into his family, into his home, 
and said everything is going to be okay with no further punishment or consequence of his actions. Now, listen to this description of Absalom as we kind of get a picture of who this man is. Verse 25 says, but in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when, and when he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, how would you like this to be your descriptor, right? There is no one in all of the land that should be praised as much for his beauty. I mean, this guy was a piece of work in a good way, right? This guy was man pretty. I mean, he was a gorgeous looking man, an Adonis, right? And so as you picture Absalom through the rest of this sermon, that's how I want you to picture him, the very, very good looking guy who has an enormously amazing head of hair, okay? Every year he cut his hair, pulling his head means cutting hair. Every year, once a year, he would cut his hair and his hair weighed 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, scholars will disagree somewhat, but most of them will place that in the five to six pounds of hair range. Some will go lower to more like two or three, but still, that is a lot of hair every year to cut off your head. Now, as, as I'm looking at this and researching, how would this guy have even kept this, this hair? I mean, this amazingly thick, huge head of hair. Most will say probably he would have had it wrapped up on top of his head in some sort of adorning crown-like feature, especially since he's the son of the king, right? So from this point on, I want you to imagine Absalom as that Adonis, that man-pretty guy, really, really gorgeous guy with his head of hair on top of his head wrapped around in kind of a crown, and it's extended up. And most of them will say that there would have been jewels and gold dust and other things that were put in his hair. It just would have looked fantastic. I mean, majestic. So that's Absalom. That's the character that we're dealing with this morning. Now in 2 Samuel 15 and verse two, Absalom has been restored. The scripture also says in verse one of this chapter that I don't have up here, that Absalom hired 50 men to ride in chariots and march in front of him everywhere he went. All right, so he's going for that very royal majestic look. So while he's, he's got his hair up like that, he's got 50 guys marching in front of him everywhere he, he goes. And so he's marching throughout Israel, letting it be known, hey, I'm the king's son, I've been restored, I'm the guy. And in verse two, it says, Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city art thou? And he said, thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, see, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land that every man which hath any suitor cause might come unto me and I would do him justice. So what we find is that this Absalom, this restored man, right? He's now the son of the king again in good standing with the king. He's, he's, he's man pretty. He's got majestic hair. He's got 50 guys marching in front of him. And now every day he's showing up in front of the king's house and he's stopping any travelers that come by and he's saying, hey, what are you going to see the king for? What's your issue? What's your problem? And they'll tell him what the problem is. And he would essentially say to each and every one of them, oh, you're right, your cause is just. If only I were the guy in charge, I could make sure that you got exactly what you want and what you need. And he essentially begins to turn the hearts of the people against his father, David. And he begins to steal their loyalty, telling them all the things that they want to hear. Second Samuel 15, verse six, it says, on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. After four years of this, now if you're reading in the King James, verse seven of chapter 15 is gonna say after 40 years, and that's a mistranslation, it's a mistype 
Uh, David only reigned for 40 years, so it was impossible to jump 40 years in that span. Uh, Most scholars will say that's supposed to be four years and not 40. So after four years of Absalom doing this and stealing the hearts of Israel, he's now ready to make his play for his father's kingdom and, and try to take over Israel. So he lies to the king and he tells David that before when he was in exile, that he had made a vow to God that he would go to Hebron and that he would worship him. And he says, I haven't been able to fulfill that vow yet. So give me leave and I'm gonna go fulfill that vow and worship God in Hebron. So David does and he allows Absalom to go to Hebron. And while in Hebron, Absalom's gonna use that opportunity to betray David. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. So Absalom leaves, he goes to Hebron, he calls one of David's trusted advisors who shouldn't necessarily have been trusted, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel joins Absalom's cause along with Israel, most of Israel. And they decide to follow Absalom. And David gets wind of this and decides the best thing to do would be to leave Jerusalem. And so David said to all of his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee for we shall not else escape from Absalom, make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So David and all of his wives and his children and servants all leave Jerusalem except for 10 concubines that David leaves at the palace to take care of the palace while he's gone. And that's gonna be important as we go through the story. So David leaves, Absalom has now gotten the people and an army behind him and he's ready to take over the king. Now, David, as he flees Jerusalem, he goes to Mount Olivet to worship and to pray to God. And I want you to think about David's attitude as we read his ascent up, to the, up this mountain. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, I pray thee turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, David, I think has a very full understanding of what is happening. You remember it wasn't that long ago, a few years before after he had committed that sin with Bathsheba that Nathan had told him out of your own house, there would be evil that would arise against you. And he has now seen that in his own son, Absalom. Nathan also made that prophecy about his wives being taken in the sight of all the sun. And I want you to, uh, or in the sight of all of the, the people of all of Israel, I want you to keep that in your mind as we continue to go through. But David goes up this mountain to worship and praise God. And, and he's humble, he's crying. He, he recognizes the consequences of his mistakes that are taking place here. He's barefoot so that he will experience pain as he's going up that mountain um, in, in recognition of what he has done. And, and then he gets there and and he hears the message that his trusted advisor Ahithophel has betrayed him and joined Absalom. And so he's praying that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. While he's up there, another one of his advisors, Hushai arrives. And Hushai wants to join David. He's loyal. And he says, David, I wanna be with you. But David has an idea. And he says, Hushai, I know you wanna be with me, but instead of that, why don't you pretend to betray me and go to Absalom and join his camp? And then you can play the double agent for me and anything that Absalom does, you can send word to me about his plans and about what he's doing and keep me informed. And maybe, maybe we can get past this. So Hushai agrees. It says, and it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend was coming to Absalom that Hushai said unto Absalom, God saved the king, God saved the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? 
And Hushai I said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And so Hushai plays his role well. Absalom accepts him in. He says, all right, another guy that's betrayed my father. And so he brings Hushai into his camp. Meanwhile, Hushai, of course, is loyal to David and playing the double agent. Now, Absalom wants to know what to do. All right, David's fled Jerusalem. Absalom's got the people behind him. He's got an army. Now, what do I do to destroy my father and really take the kingdom for my own? Ahithophel is gonna provide some advice. So uh, Absalom tells Ahithophel, give counsel among, among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art a port of thy father. And then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. So Ahithophel is gonna recommend an action that cannot be undone, an action that's gonna provide a rift between Absalom and David so strong that there will be no reconciliation. He's gonna uh, suggest a course of action that's gonna make it clear that at the end of this story, either David or Absalom is gonna be on top, but not both. He says, go to those 10 concubines that your father left at the palace and take them for your own and do it in the sight of all of Israel. And when you do that, that will be a clear message to David and to everyone else that the kingdom is yours. And so Absalom does that. And he takes his father's 10 concubines and he has them in the sight of all of Israel. Now I want us to recognize these concubines were legal wives of the kings, though they did not carry the social status of a wife of the king, but they are still legally bound to the king and it would have been absolutely improper and punishable by death to have touched a concubine of the king. And so I remind you of that prophecy that Nathan told to David so many years before, where he said that evil that would rise up from your own house would take your wives before the side of all Israel. And now that has happened through his own son, Absalom. In 2 Samuel 17, verse one, Ahithophel is gonna take it one step further. Ahithophel said unto Absalom, now let me choose out 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak handed and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest as, is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. He says, give me 12,000 men right now. I'll pursue after David. I'll kill him, right? Cut the head off the snake. Everybody else will come and be loyal to you. They'll leave David's camp. It'll be clean. It'll be easy. Well, Hushai, the double agent who's loyal to David is hearing this. And so he's gonna provide Absalom with some differing advice. Hushai said unto Absalom, the counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. For said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men that they be mighty men and they be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war and will not lodge with the people. Hushai says, look, don't give Ahithophel the 12,000 men to go after David right now. He says, your father is a war-hardened guy. He is a military guy. He has been through battle after battle. You don't wanna face him unprepared. 2 Samuel 17, verse 11. Hushai says, therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude and that thou go to battle in thine own person. Now, Hushai, I think, is stroking the ego of Absalom a little bit. He says, no, 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 don't send Ahithophel with guys. We wanna be prepared. Your father's a very, very war-hardened guy. He says, and, and better yet, you need to be the guy. 
to lead the army. We need to prepare. We need to send out a call. We need to get as big of an army as we can. And then you, Absalom, in all of your majestic glory, need to lead that army against your father and defeat him. And so Absalom hears both of these ideas and he goes with Hushai's idea. He says, that's the idea that we're gonna go with. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Now, as I first was studying through this, I thought that's a bit of an overreaction to Absalom not taking your advice, but nevertheless, he saw his place had been taken by Hushai. He was no longer the go-to counsel for Absalom. So he went home. Uh, got his house in order and committed suicide. So there's no more Ahithophel in this story. That's the end of his story. So Absalom heeds Hushai's advice. He's gonna put that call out, get prepared to go against his father in battle in person. Second Samuel 18 and verse one, we've now arrived at the point in which this battle is gonna take place. And David has gotten all of his soldiers and those that are loyal to him ready. And Absalom's gotten all of those that are loyal to him ready. And there's about to be a big battle that takes place. David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Atai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. Now I want us to think about this for a moment. David, who his own son, right, has, has attempted to steal the kingdom after murdering one of his other sons, has attempted to steal the kingdom, has taken his concubines in the sight of all of Israel, has organized an army to go up against him and seek to kill him. And yet David still goes to the commanders of his army and says, deal gently with the boy. Don't kill him. I want him alive. He's my son. And this didn't set well with the commanders of the army. And everyone that heard that, they heard that command that the king had given. But nevertheless, they go into this battle and verse six and seven of chapter 18 says, so the people went out into the field against Israel and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David and there, and there was there a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. Now where this was supposed to have been a great battle between the two armies, it turned into a great slaughter. And David and his war-hardened commanders and soldiers easily took care of the army that Absalom had gathered together. And they killed 20,000 men that day of Absalom's army. Verse nine says, and Absalom met the servants of David. So Absalom has led his army in person, right? So now in the chaos of his army being scattered and destroyed, Absalom comes upon some of David's servants. And Absalom was riding upon a mule or rode upon a mule and the mule went under the thick bows of a great oak and his head caught hold of the oak and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Now, remember how I told you to picture Absalom in this story. Absalom is that Adonis looking guy with that great head of hair that's wrapped up in a crown like feature upon his head. And as Absalom is riding on that mule and he's trying to get away from the soldiers of, of the king, he rides under this oak tree and that great magnificent head of hair gets caught in the oak tree. And so the mule keeps going and he's just hanging there on the tree by his head. And some of the servants of the king said, hey, there's Absalom, he's hanging in a tree. What should we do? And so they go and they tell Joab. And what does Joab do? Then said Joab, I may not, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And 10 young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Now, remember the king had very specifically commanded that Absalom not be harmed. And Joab said, uh-uh, 
we're ending this now. And he went to Absalom as he's still hanging there in the oak and he killed him and put an end to this rebellion once and for all. Verse 33 says, and the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. Before I read that, let me give you the backstory. So a messenger comes to the king and he says, your son Absalom has been killed. And David is sad and sorrowful and wails and cries and goes off by himself in mourning over his son. And Joab comes to the king and Joab's gonna give him a speech. And that'll be the next verse. But as the king goes into mourning, he goes, he weeps, he went and he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He's mourning, he's crying out about his son and Joab's gonna come in and he's gonna talk some truth to him. Joab came into the house of the king and said, thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines in that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that Absalom had lived and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now, therefore, arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. And then the king arose and sat in the gate and they told all, unto all the people saying, behold, the king doth sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king and Israel, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. David is in there privately mourning and wailing over the death of his son. And jo Joab comes before him and says, look, what you're telling me and all of us is that you would rather have lost this battle and that all of us had died and Absalom still be alive. That's what, this is, that's what this is telling us. He says, you've got guys out there that just fought for you and saved your kingdom, saved your life, saved your children's lives, your wives' lives and everybody's lives and saved the kingdom for you. He says, if you don't get out there and thank your troops, if you don't get out there and show appreciation for what was just done for you, we're gonna be gone. You're gonna come out and we're all gonna be gone and you're gonna have lost your kingdom. And thankfully, David listened. He went out, he sat by the gate. He thanked the people, they came before him and David's kingdom was officially restored. Now I wanna talk about some lessons quickly this morning that I think that we can learn from this story that I want you to take as we leave this morning. And remember, when you think about Absalom and King David and Amnon and this story and all that transpired here, some things that you can take to apply to your Christian life. First of all, I think we need to recognize some lessons we can learn about consequences of sin. The first is that your sins do have consequences. And we think about David. David's sin with Bathsheba is what brought all of these consequences on. And in addition to this, they had a baby that was also lost. There were multiple consequences that David faced. We think about Amnon. Amnon committed sin with Tamar. Did it end out well for him? No, he was murdered by his brother as a result of his sin. Absalom decided to take the kingdom from his father. Were there consequences for that? Absolutely. He ended up getting hung in an oak tree and getting killed for it. And the reality is that sin has consequences. Our free will decisions will have effects and consequences in this life and ultimately in the next. And every single one of us need to recognize that God has given us the free will to choose the kind of life that we wanna live, the decisions that we wanna make. He started that back in Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve. And though all of us have the free will to choose whatever kind of a life we want to live, our choices will bring about certain consequences in our life. And this story, I think, illustrates that very well. And when we make bad, sinful decisions in our life, it will come back to us in our relationships that will be strained, in our chaos that we will live within our home, in our dissatisfaction with our life, 
in a life that's not filled with joy or contentment or satisfaction. And ultimately the greatest consequence that will come as a result of our sin is an eternal destination towards hell instead of heaven. And so this morning, as we think about David and Amnon and Absalom, regardless of the end of their story, we see the consequences of their actions. I wanna encourage you to think very seriously about the consequences that your choices, every choice that you make each day will have in your life. I think we can learn from this story also that other people's choices have consequences. Sometimes that have an effect on us that we can't control. And I think about Amnon and Tamar and poor Tamar in this story who did nothing wrong and begged and pleaded with Amnon to not do what he wanted to do. And yet she was still affected and hurt by the free will choices of someone else. And I want us to recognize that in this life, there are people who will choose to do evil. There are people who will choose to hurt others and bring upon pain and grief in your life. And there are going to be times when through no fault of your own and when it's totally out of your control, you are hurt and affected and see consequences in your life from the bad decisions and bad choices of others. And I wanna encourage you this morning, if you're in that situation or have faced that situation in your life, to remember that it is not your fault that someone took that, that action against you. It was not Tamar's fault. It was Amnon's and the evil that was in his heart and the free will choice that he made that day. And so I hope though we don't see Tamar's future in the story and we don't know a whole lot about what she did from that point on, I hope that she was able to move forward from that and recover her life and trust in God and put her faith in God and keep moving forward because that's what I wanna encourage you to do this morning. No matter what anyone else has done to you, remember, that we may not have control of it, but we do have control of how we react to it and what we do moving forward. And I wanna encourage you to keep your faith in God, keep trust in him and walk forward, seeking good things in your life from that point on. I think we can learn about consequences of sin as well, that revenge will turn us into the very thing we hate. I think one of the very interesting uh, elements of this story is the fact that Absalom was so angry at Amnon for the sin that he had committed against Tamar, that he was willing to murder him. And yet later in this story, Absalom commits the exact same atrocity against his father's 10 concubines. The exact same sin that he had become so angry, murderously angry about, and he becomes exactly the thing that he hated so much. You know, that's exactly what revenge will do to us. And I wanna encourage you when someone does hurt you, when someone else's sins or free will choices do play out consequences in your life that you're having to face, don't go with the idea that I've gotta get them back. Don't go with the idea of revenge that'll make me feel better to seek in my life how I can hurt them back for that. Because when you do that, you'll just turn into them. You won't solve a problem, you'll create more problems for yourself. And you'll find yourself in a situation where you become the very thing that you despised and that you hated. And so I wanna encourage you to make a better choice than Absalom made. His life was derailed at that point after his choice to hold that revenge and bitterness and hatred in his heart and eventually murder his brother. I think there's some things we can learn about relationships from this story. We need to be careful who we put our faith in. There was a lot of misplaced faith in this story. David placed his faith in Absalom, restored Absalom's position as his son, allowed for four years Absalom to steal the kingdom out from under his nose put his faith in him and it came back to bite him. We think about Amnon, he put his faith in Absalom. Two years after committing that sin against Tamar, Amnon thought it would be a good idea to go to Absalom's feast and get drunk. And yet when he did that, it gave opportunity for Absalom to kill him. Absalom, he misplaced his faith in Hushai. 
He believed the ego stroking, right, that Hushai gave him. He believed it, welcomed Hushai in. And that eventually led to his downfall and David's ability to defeat him. I think in our life, we need to be careful who we're putting our faith in. I think we need to evaluate the advice and evaluate the things that those people are speaking into our life. And we need to filter that through the word of God, through truth. And if we're putting our faith and our trust in somebody who's leading us down a wrong path, who's leading us down a sinful path, who is telling us things or giving us advice or encouraging us to do things that are against the will of God, then those are not the people that we need to have our faith and our trust in. And we need to allow ourselves to push those people farther away from our inner circle and put instead people in our inner circle that will speak truth to us, that will speak into our life God's word and God's truth and encourage those good, righteous things. Be careful who you put your faith in. And remember that a real friend will speak the truth no matter what. Joab and David are gonna have their problems later in life, but in this story, Joab was a true friend. He took care of the problem by killing Absalom and then he went and spoke to the king and said, you better stop wailing about Absalom's death and get out there and thank the guys that just fought for you and saved your kingdom. And he essentially saved David's kingdom that day too by telling him that. A real friend is gonna speak truth to you. They're not gonna sugarcoat it. They're not gonna tell you that sin's okay. They're not gonna justify your actions for you. They're gonna be people that hold you accountable. And accountability, I think, is something that every single Christian needs in their life. We need accountability with our spouse. We need accountability with our friends. We need people in our life who are going to tell us how it really is. Who when they see us taking a particular path or making a particular decision that's not good, that's not godly, that will look us in the eye and say, look, I'm concerned because what I'm seeing is not what I, what I feel like you should be doing and what I think God's word teaches that you should be doing. And we need people that are gonna look us in the eye and talk to us like that. And we need to be that for our friends. We need to be willing to be the friend that says, look, that's not okay. That's not right. You've asked me as your, as your friend in Christ to help you. We're all trying to help each other in this Christian journey. And I'm not so, saying go out there and, and just give everybody unasked for unwarranted advice. But I'm talking about those friendships that you have with people where you have that layer of trust and you can speak to each other. Don't justify and sugarcoat things hold each other accountable, help each other in this Christian walk that ultimately will lead to heaven. Everybody needs a Joab in their life and everybody needs to be the Joab from time to time. I think we can learn from this story also that our actions as parents have a huge impact on the decisions of our children. And I want you to think about David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom. I don't think that at any point David took his sons aside and sat them down and said, sons, whenever you see anything that you want, no matter how sinful it is, you should just go for it and get it. God will be fine with that. I don't think David ever taught them that verbally, but you know what David did? He showed him that. It's exactly the lesson that he showed him when he looked at Bathsheba and said, she's not mine to have, but I want her, so I'm gonna take her. And that's exactly the example that he set for his sons. So why are we surprised that when Amnon looked across at his half-sister Tamar and said, I want her, why are we surprised that he took her? And why are we surprised that Absalom looked at a kingdom that wasn't his and said, I want it, said, I'm gonna take it. Because our children see the decisions that we make. They see the mistakes that we make. And if we're not careful and diligent about teaching them through those mistakes, even when we make those mistakes, to teach them that that's wrong, apologize for that and show them the repentance of that. You know, what we saw through the course of this story with Tamar and such is that David did not provide the consequences and punishment that was needed to show the proper reaction to those situations. And instead, 
His decisions were an example for them to follow. Sometimes, and I've, already, I've only been a parent for eight years, but you can already see your strengths and your weaknesses, the good things about you and the bad things about you that come out in your children. And that's scary. It's scary when you see those weaknesses and you see those failures in your own life starting to come out in your kids. And I wanna encourage you to pay attention to what you're teaching them, not just with your words, but with your actions. You'll lose your credibility as a parent if you believe that you can live the do as I say and not as I do parenting philosophy and that it will work. You'll lose your credibility and your kids will not continue to do what you say. They'll do what you do. And that's what David's kids did. I think we can learn that protecting others from the consequences of their own actions will actually hurt them. Again, David didn't provide the consequences. He didn't punish Amnon for what Amnon did to Tamar. He didn't even punish Absalom for what Absalom did to Amnon. And still after Absalom had taken his concubines, sought to take his kingdom and brought an army against him, David still didn't even want Absalom to be killed. Have you ever been in that situation where, or seen that situation where the parent is so quick to assume that it's anybody else's kid's fault and it's not theirs? It can't be my kid. And my kids wouldn't have done that. We need to recognize that all of us are human beings and our kids are human beings and our kids are gonna make mistakes and they're gonna do wrong things. And I hope I'm not bursting your bubble this morning, but your kids are going to do wrong things. The worst thing you can do when they do wrong things is to cover it up and gloss over it and pretend that it didn't happen and not let them see consequence for it. Because when kids grow up with no consequences of their actions, they become adults that continue to think there's no consequences for their actions. And that's exactly what we've seen in this story. And so I wanna encourage the parents in the crowd this morning to not think first, well, it can't be my kid. Maybe think first, hey, let me make sure that it's not my kid. And if it's my kid, we're gonna teach through that. And we're gonna show consequences for actions if they've done something wrong. And we're gonna teach them to make a better decision in the future because we want to raise good adults that recognize there's consequences for actions and that has to be taught as children. I think we can learn some lessons about humility. Outward beauty and charm needs to be used to bring glory to God and not yourself. Absalom was a very, very gorgeous guy, man pretty, right? That amazing head of hair, he used it to glorify himself. He used it to steal the hearts of Israel and to take what wasn't his, to charm people and lie to them. You know, you may be here and maybe you look in the mirror in the morning and you think, man pretty, Adonis, that's me. Maybe that descriptor for Absalom applies to you. Maybe you're a very, very good looking person this morning. Maybe you've got a lot of charm and have the ability to have people eating out of your hand. You know, that's not wrong to be physically beautiful. It's not wrong to have charm, but it needs to be used to bring glory to God, not yourself. Think about how you can use those things if you have charm and the ability to talk to people and convince people of things, talk to them about the right things, convince them of good, righteous things, not things that are gonna bring glory to you. I think we can learn that that which we pride ourselves in the most may eventually be our downfall. You know, Absalom had that amazing head of hair and that hair is exactly what got him into trouble. What's what got him caught in the oak and led to his demise. You know, when we look at our strengths, at our talents, at our abilities, at our physical attributes, whatever those things are that we look and we think, this is, this is my strength. This is what I'm good at. This is, this is me. I'm better than everybody else at this. If we allow ourselves to lift ourselves up with pride, 
What does the scripture say in Proverbs? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Those things, the moment that we think we're invincible is the moment we should be most worried about falling. The moment that we lift ourselves up and believe that we're better than someone else is the moment that we've really placed ourselves below others because we've taken a very humanistic view instead of a godly view, very pride-filled view instead of humble view. When instead what we see through this story is that humility is exactly what will last through to the end. Acknowledging, confessing, and repenting of sin will always be better for you in the end. What we saw in this story with all of these various characters, who was it at the end who was still alive? Who was it who was still sitting on the throne reigning in Israel? It was David. Not because he was perfect, not because he hadn't made mistakes, but because after he made them, he recognized them, he confessed them, and he repented of them. And he lasted to the end. And the same thing's gonna be true for you and I. When we do things that are wrong, when we've been living a lifestyle that's sinful and that's ungodly, when we know in our life that we show up to church on Sunday and though we say that we're a Christian and we show up and we shake hands and we play the part, but when we know deep down in our heart that we're not living the kind of life that God wants us to, in that moment of recognition, we have a choice to make. We can keep covering it up. We can keep being a hypocrite. We can keep putting on a show like Absalom did, but that will lead to our downfall. Or in that moment of recognition that we've made mistakes like David did, that we've sinned against God like David did, we can make the better choice like David did to be humble enough to confess it, to repent, to seek to do things differently moving forward. And that's what I wanna encourage you this morning to do. As we think about the end result of this story, think about your life and where you stand with God today. Are you in a good place with God? Are you living a sincere heartfelt life of service to him? Or have you made mistakes and done things that you know that you need to confess and repent of? This morning, you have the choice to be an Absalom or you have the choice to be a David. You have the choice to be someone that goes after what they want or someone that goes after what God wants. Despite all of his mistakes, the scripture still referred to David as a man after God's own heart. And it doesn't matter what the mistake is. It doesn't matter how badly you think that you may have sinned or gone wrong. What God is asking of you is to confess and to repent, to change. And he says that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of those things when we're willing to do that. So this morning, if we as a church can help you in any way, if we can help you through offering an opportunity to obey the gospel and baptism and be added to the Lord's kingdom, or we can help you through praying for you and helping you to restore your relationship with God to where it needs to be, we invite you to come sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.